Well, it pains me, it pains me to admit this, but I have a brother and we are friends. It, it pains me to admit this. How many of you have a sibling of, of some kind? You, you have a brother, a sister, younger, older, it doesn't matter. Then, then maybe your experience growing up was like my experience growing up. Don't break that chair now. Be careful. What's it doing? It goes down when you sit on it. That's the way they make them these days. There you go. Right there. There you go. Yeah. That's the best we can do. Uh, how many? So here, here, maybe your experience was like my experience growing up. When we were younger, my brother and I used to fight all the time. Now, my dad tells me that what I am experiencing as Corey and I raise our children, and there are three boys within a few years of each other, and then little Miss Kenley kind of running the show, that I am, the, the Lord's paying me back for what my brother and I did to he and my mom when we were growing up. But there were different stages of our lives when we were rivals. You know, there were different stages in our lives when we just completely ignored and avoided one another. Maybe those middle school years where it's like, no, he doesn't even exist. I don't have a brother. Um, and then there were those moments where we actually got along. You know, it was like day four of vacation when there were no other kids to play with. Like, you just, you just kind of figure, like, we've got to play together or we're not going to play with anybody else. And then we'd get back home and hate one another again for a little while. But here's what's happened over the last few years, maybe the same for many of you. As we got older, as I moved out of the house, and so distance and space kind of helped us not to fight as much all the time. And then as we started getting married and having kids of our own, and he's a pastor in Kentucky and has been for several years, and so we share a commonality of vocation and job and life calling, and our relationship has strengthened. Our relationship has, has deepened to a level that I didn't really think was possible when we were younger. Now, there's still no one in the world that frustrates me quite like he does. We can get off the phone with one another, and the way in which I hit the end button or put my phone on the counter, Corey will say, you just talked to Jason? <laughs> and that's pretty much the way it goes. But there's other times when we're talking on the phone, and I laugh harder than I laugh at anybody else in the world because of some story he's recounting or some joke he's telling, and I'll put the phone down, and Corey will say, you're talking to Jason? Because that's the kind of relationship we have. I, I would say now, and it pains me to admit this, I would say now he's probably one of my best friends in the entire world. When, when, when I was like 10 years old, 12 years old, there's no way I would possibly think that I could say that at some point in my life. But now I would say that he and I, he's one of my best friends. Now, we're going to strike this from the podcast because he'll go listen to this and then he'll hold it over my head for the rest of my life. But man, he's, he's one of my best friends. And, and the thing that I love about our relationship is there's a closeness there. There's a bond. I know he has my back. Now, looking back, I realized when we were younger, he had my back then. I had his back. But man, he has my back. He has my best interest in mine. And I think that's fitting for us today because we're going to continue our series that we started a few weeks ago on the life of David. We've been looking out of the story of David, really found in a couple of places in the Old Testament and obviously referenced in the New Testament because of his importance to the Christian faith. We've been looking at the story of David, and we've looked at it from the approach of really the relationships and the interactions of his life. And so today we're going to look at a friendship and a relationship that David had with a guy by the name of Jonathan. Yeah, the story of David and Jonathan is primarily told in 1 Samuel chapters 18 through 20. So let me kind of recap what happens there to get to what we want to talk about concerning their relationship. This is right after David has killed Goliath. And David's name is becoming well known among the people of Israel. King Saul brings David into his court permanently 
and makes him a high-ranking officer within the military. And from that position, David's able to go out and lead the army, and he's winning all kinds of battles. And David is becoming more popular to the people than King Saul. And so Saul gets very jealous of David, and he begins to hatch all these different plots to kill David. But God is on David's side, and God keeps foiling Saul's plots. And one of the ways that God does this is he brings into David's life Jonathan, who is King Saul's oldest son. And we see what this relationship is or begins to become in uh, 1 Samuel 18, verses 1 and 3. David's just killed Goliath. He's had a conversation with Saul. And then we see what happens between he and Jonathan. 1 Samuel 18, verses 1 and 3. After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. Verse 3. And Jonathan made a covenant with David, David because he loved him as himself. That phrase there, one in spirit, is the idea of a kindred spirit, a spirit being knitted together. And this is a type of relationship that when Jonathan and, and, and David saw each other for the first time, it's kind of like they became instant friends, friends very quickly. They just had a bond together that you couldn't really explain. And maybe you have somebody like that in your life, that the first time you met them, man, you just became fast friends quickly, and you just had this deep devotion that continued to develop from there. And it says here that Jonathan and David entered into a covenant. Now, in the time of David and Jonathan, when someone would enter into a covenant together, there was usually some type of a sacrifice and the shedding of blood to indicate a couple of things. Number one, that they were like blood brothers. Number two, that they were willing to die for one another, just like this sacrificial animal died for them to go into covenant. And then third, should one of them break the covenant, whoever does that, that they would become like the sacrificial animal, that death would come upon them. Now, we don't know if David and Jonathan actually did that. It doesn't say in the text. But if they didn't go through all of that, they came into this relationship with that kind of mindset, a covenant type of attitude, if you will, that they had this deep devotion of really to die for one another. Well, as the story goes on, we move into chapter 19. Um, Saul is trying to kill David. Jonathan keeps warning David about his dad trying to kill him. And then Jonathan goes to his dad and convinces his dad to leave David alone. And Saul says, okay, I vow not to kill David. So David comes back into the court for a brief time because Saul can't keep his vow. And behind Jonathan's back, he starts plotting again to try to kill David. And David has to go on the run. And then chapter 20, we see David and Jonathan talking again. And David asks of Jonathan, why is your dad trying to kill me? And Jonathan says, he's not. David says, no, he isn't. Jonathan says, he's not. And they go back and forth. Finally, David convinces Jonathan, you need to investigate your dad to see what he's doing against me. So Jonathan says he does, will and says, okay, if I find out he's not trying to kill you, I'll give you the coast is clear, you can come back. If I find out he is, I'll let you know and you can flee and run for your life. Well, Jonathan finds out, yes, indeed, his dad has broken the vow and is trying to kill David. So Jonathan goes to David to tell him, yeah, you need to run for your life. And we pick up the story in chapter 20, verse 42, because we see the fullness of what this relationship is built upon. And it's important that we see this. Chapter 20, verse 42, Jonathan said to David, this is kind of their goodbye, farewell to one another. Go in peace, for we have sworn friendship, it's referring to the covenant, with each other in the name of the Lord, saying, the Lord is witness between you 
and me and between your descendants and my descendants forever. Then David left and Jonathan went back to the town. So we look at David and Jonathan. Out of this statement, we see three foundational blocks of this relationship. The first we've already talked about, they had a covenant relationship. Willing to die for one another, willing to, to, to go to death should one of them break the covenant. So they had this covenant, deep, devoted relationship to one another. But secondly, we see it's in the name of the Lord, which means it's established in the character and the purpose of God. When we use that phrase at the end of a prayer, when we say a prayer and then we say in the name of Jesus, what we're saying there, we're saying that we are praying and believing this prayer to be in alignment with the character and the purpose of God. So whenever we invoke the name of the Lord, that's what we're saying. So this relationship established, the centrality of their relationship is in the character and purposes of God. The third foundational stone of this uh, uh, relationship is that it's under the authority and witness of God. When they said here, the Lord is the witness between us and our descendants, this covenant went beyond them and to the rest of their household for as long as their household was alive. But when they say, the Lord is my witness, they're saying that this relationship is under the highest authority and witness you can have anywhere. The most credible witness is God. Now, you and I, we may say something like, God as my witness, I'm not ever going to do that again, or I'm not ever going to let that happen again. That's just a phrase of emphasis to us. It's just kind of that. But in Jonathan and David's time, it was a binding type of phrase that it's the God Almighty who testifies to the authenticity, to the sincerity, to the character and conduct of this relationship. And if we ever want him to testify, we want him to be for us and not against us. So we look at this relationship. It's a covenant relationship. It's established in the character and purpose of God under the authority and the witness of God. Now with that said, let me ask all of us a question. I want you to think about this a moment. Can you think of any relationship that you presently have or could potentially have that matches David and Jonathan? Do you have or could you have a relationship that's a covenant relationship? It's established in the character and purpose of God, and it's under the authority and the testimony of God. I want you to ponder that a moment while Pastor Jeremy kind of shows us some qualities of what this kind of relationship looks like. If you got a Bible, flip with me to 1 Samuel 18. Pastor did a great job of really kind of summarizing the story, but I want us to look at a few specific passages of Scripture or verses of Scripture out of chapter 18 and 19 of 1 Samuel uh, that really help to show us these qualities that exist within this relationship. And as you're answering that question in your head, do I have any relationships currently or is there a potential in relationship moving forward? that really helped me to kind of see the, the qualities that David and Jonathan possess. I want us to look at a few of those qualities that, that they had in their relationship and we see in their interactions so that you can maybe help evaluate your current or potential future relationships with other people. And so if we, we turn to the very first verse, which pastors already read a little bit, the very first verse of chapter 18, this is what we read. It says, after David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. Now that phrase, loved him as himself, there's a little bit of a kind of a foreshadowing to the, the conversation Jesus has when somebody says, hey, what's the greatest commandment? He says, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. This idea of loving someone else as yourself, that's difficult for us. We think we do it. 
But man, we love ourselves, don't we? Mm. I mean, we really love ourselves. If you're not sure, you know, think about a group picture. You pick up the group picture, you look at it on your phone. What's the first person you look at? Yourself. Like, how do I look, right? Oh, everybody else looks great, but my eyes are closed. This picture's terrible. Like, it, we just, we think about ourselves, right? We, we're focusing on ourselves. When, when, when we get news in our family, oh, we're moving, I'm being transferred. What do we, how does this affect me? Because we're so self-consumed. Now, some of that's natural. I'm not saying that's sinful. But then to love someone as ourselves, to really contemplate them, how does this affect them? How much do I care for myself? I've got to care the same way for them. The very first quality that we see here is loving. There's a loving aspect to this relationship that they have with one another. Now, many of you, if you attend here regularly, you know that over the course of this spring, I did several weddings. I mean, back to back to back to back to back. I did a lot of weddings. And in every one of those weddings, I quoted a passage of Scripture that's very famous. You may have had this quoted in your wedding if you're married, or you may have a coffee mug that has this on there or something like that. But it's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It's called the love chapter. And there's a lot here that Paul unpacks when he's writing a letter to the church in the city of Corinth. But this is what it says in verses eight, uh, 4 through 8. It says, love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. And what I said to those couples in their wedding ceremonies is you can tell your spouse you love them all you want. But if we don't demonstrate this kind of attitude towards one another, if we don't exemplify this kind of love towards one another, your words are really meaningless because your actions do really speak louder than your words. But we do see these kinds of qualities ongoing in the relationship between David and Jonathan. The second thing that we see is found in verse 4 of chapter 18 when it says this, Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow, and his belt. The second quality that we see here is it's a giving relationship. It's a giving relationship. I referenced my brother earlier. His love language is gifts. Now, if you don't know about love languages, it's a book from several years ago that talks about the way that we give and receive love, and it's gifts and quality time and physical touch and acts of service, and we have words of affirmation. We have all these things that people kind of utilize to give and receive loves, and if you're in a relationship with my brother, that's a great thing because he gives love in the form of gifts, and that's great because he's a great gift giver. And so one of the things I love about my brother is, man, when it comes time for birthdays and Christmas, and man, it's, it's great to be in relationship <laughs> with my brother. Now, I don't always reciprocate that gift giving in a great way. I'm like, oh, you got me a $100 pair of headphones. Thank you so much. Here's Monopoly. I mean, I don't always do a great job, but you know, he, he's a great gift giver. But in our relationships, this is not just about giving people money or giving them some possession. If, if we really have these kinds of relationships with one another, this is about giving of our time, giving of ourself, giving of the best of what we have towards one another. The, the son of the king gave to David his robe. This would not just have been something he picked up at Target. This is a big deal. He gave him his tunic. He gave him his belt. He gave him the things that he possessed that were of great value and had they rep represented great authority in that kingdom. And he gave it to David because of their relationship. The third quality is found at the beginning of chapter 19. It's in verse 1 in the first part of verse 2, and it says this. Saul told his son Jonathan and all the attendants to kill David. 
But Jonathan was very fond of David and warned him, my father Saul is looking for a chance to kill you. Now we can stop right there. It goes on a little bit to talk about some of the specific warnings that, uh, that Jonathan gives to David. But the third quality that we see here is that it's protecting. Not only is the relationship loving and giving, it's also protecting. You have someone who's really looking to protect you. Several years ago, Corey and I were leaving on vacation with our kids, and we packed the car, which is a chore in and of itself. We loaded all the kids in the car. We pulled out of the driveway. If you're anything like me, by the time you're actually, you get the car in reverse, you feel like that's a victory in and of itself. And so we pull it in reverse, and I'm backing out of the driveway, and about the time I do, I just reach up, and I hit the little garage door opener, closer thing that I've got hanging there on my visor, and I don't even wait to see it come all the way down. I'm just ready to get on the road. We've been trying to leave for about three days. And so I'm ready to get moving. I hit it, I pull out, and I just take off. It always comes down, except I later found out the garage door came all the way to the bottom, hit the broom that had fallen down, and went back up. And here I am. I'm going to be out of state for several days. And so I now have a vulnerability at my house. Thankfully, my neighbor across the street, who we had relationship with one another, he, he saw after a day or so, he said, you know, something's not right. They're, they're not home. I don't see the kids out in the yard. The, the garage door's up. And so he went across to my house and went into my garage, closed the garage door, and then did that like Olympic hurdle jump over the little sensor. You ever had to do that when you like forgotten your keys or you don't, and he kind of jumped over it. And when I came home, he said, hey, listen, I just need to tell you, I went into your garage and I closed your garage door. And just, just so you know, I, I hope that doesn't bother you. I just, I felt like if you guys were gone, it didn't seem like you were home. If you were gone, that, you know, you just didn't want to leave your garage door open. Now, here's what he was doing. He was protecting me from a vulnerability I didn't even know I had. There was a place in our life, there was a place kind of in, in our world in those days that we didn't even know we were susceptible to an attack. And he came and protected us without us even knowing it. And this is what we see here. Jonathan says to David, he says, hey, listen, my dad wants to kill you. Like he warns him over these few verses. He says, hey, here's the plan. Here's what's going to happen. You, you, you got you to gotta pay attention. I don't want you to die. He was protecting David in this relationship that he had with him. And, and here's the question I would ask of us. Do you have anybody who's got your back? I talked about my brother earlier. I talked about him having my, do you have anybody, and maybe it's just a friendship, maybe it's a spouse, maybe it's another kind of relationship. That you, do you have somebody that not just, hey, you know, they're, they're nice to hang out with. I'm talking about like they're looking out for your vulnerabilities. They're not taking advantage of your vulnerabilities. They're looking out for them. You know, my neighbor could have walked right in through my garage door and taken anything in my house that he wanted. He could have called his buddies and said, hey, you want a new flat screen? I, I'm going to give you a free gift that I got the other day. No, he could have stolen it right out of my house. But instead of taking advantage of that, he protected me. He came in and protected. Do you have anybody in your life who is protecting the places that you're vulnerable, who is warning you of things? Hey, I see this in this area of your life, and you may want to evaluate this. And the way you manage money and the dating relationship you're in right now, in your marriage relationship, I see some habits here. I see some things. The way you're talking to other people, I see this is a place that you're a little bit vulnerable. I want to protect you. I want to help you. And do you give them permission to speak those kinds of things into your life? The fourth thing that we see is found in verses 4 and 5 of chapter 19. It says, Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king do wrong to his servant David. <clears throat> he has not wronged you. What he has done has benefited you greatly. He took his life in his hands when he killed the Philistine, and the Lord won a great victory for all of Israel. And you saw it 
and we're glad. The very first thing that we see there is it says, Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul. The fourth aspect that we see in this relationship is that it's affirming. It's affirming. Jonathan spoke well of David to his father, Saul. He didn't just speak well to David in person. We have a lot of people that will speak well of us to our face, right? But do you have anybody in your life who will speak well of you to other people? And that's difficult for us to know because we're not sure how they're talking about us when we're away. Here's a good evaluation. Are they talking to you in a negative way about somebody else? Usually that tells you that when they're not with you, they're talking negatively about you. But do we have the kind of people who are affirming in our life? Some of you possess this gift. I hate to admit this in front of pastor because he's never actually done this. But there are some Sundays where I preach and I go, wow, that was terrible. I mean, that was the worst sermon I've ever preached. I'm not even sure I believe what I just said. I mean, it's bad. And I get to the front door and I'm shaking your hands and you walk up and you go, that was the greatest message I've ever heard. Like the Holy Spirit used that to change my life. And I'm thinking, you're a liar, but man, do I love you. (laughs) Because you're affirming and you're encouraging. And some of you have that gift. Maybe it's not in this. Maybe you have in other relationships or other areas of your life where you just have the gift of affirmation. You have the gift of encouragement. I love being around people that are affirming and encouraging. I hate being around people who are negative and always talking about people and always finding the negative out of every situation. Those are not the kinds of people I like to hang out with. I like to hang out with people who are affirming. And so these four qualities, one more time, we see that there's a loving aspect to this relationship. We see that there's a giving aspect to this relationship. We see that there's a protecting aspect to this relationship. And we see that there's affirming in this relationship. And I wouldn't say that this is an exhaustive list. I wouldn't say we even have every aspect of their relationship. But I think if we are evaluating the kinds of relationships that we have, we're trying to determine the people that we're interacting with, and if those are the kind of people that we could have this David and Jonathan type of relationship, do they possess these types of qualities? And I wonder if we as individuals and if we as the church exhibit these kinds of qualities toward one another. And when you look at these qualities he just articulated out of this Jonathan-David relationship, and you look at the foundation that I shared a moment ago of what the relationship was built upon, as, as Jeremy and I were kind of uh, preparing this, this message, which hopefully we'll get a tremendous amount of affirmation for. I set you up. <laughs> um, uh, we began to look at this and we thought, wow, when you look at these qualities and you look at the foundation of their relationship, to us, this was a great Old Testament picture of the church in community. When you look at David and Jonathan, what they were built upon and what the qualities they exhibited, it really is the church in community. So let's very quickly look at it from that perspective a moment. When we talk about the church in community, the church is built upon a covenant relationship. Now, us as followers of Christ in this room, those that are followers of Christ in here, sometimes we don't think about that reality. It's a covenant relationship. Remember we talked about covenant. Usually there was a sacrifice that goes with it, a shedding of blood. We have the greatest ultimate sacrifice in the person of Jesus Christ on the cross. He shed his blood so you and I, or followers of Christ, could be who we are today. Brings us together. The shedding of his blood, in essence, spiritually, makes all followers of Christ brothers and sisters. Blood, brothers and sisters. Spiritually, through the blood of Jesus Christ. We're established upon the greatest sacrifice in all of human history, in that of Jesus Christ. Also... The church is established in the name of the Lord. We're established in the character and the purpose of God in Christ. I mean, what are we corporately? 
We are helping one another, admonishing one another, modeling to one another, encouraging one another, learning from one another, teaching one another what it means to reflect the nature and the image and the character of Jesus Christ and to live in obedience according to His will and according to His way. We're established in the name of the Lord and God is our witness as to who we are. His witness and testimony rests upon us as followers of Christ the church as to who we are as his children, as his sons and daughter, daughters, as the body of Christ in this earth. So looking at that, and you're going to hear me say this a couple of times in the remaining part of this message. When done right, there is no greater community on the face of the earth like the church of Jesus Christ. There just isn't. So let's look real quickly at some New Testament scriptures that kind of reinforce what we've been sharing here and, and look at, and, and kind of reflect out of what Jonathan and David had. We're going to look at a couple of scriptures out of Ephesians and a couple of scriptures out of Romans. The first one is Ephesians 5, verses 1 and 2. This is what the Apostle Paul writes. He's writing to the church. He says, Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. What do we see? Jesus Christ is the sacrifice, the shedding of the blood that makes you and I the church. And what does Paul say? He says, follow the way of God, the example of God, his character. Where do we see what that example and character is? In Jesus Christ. Christ. So this is who we are. We're brought together by the shedding of the blood of Christ on the cross, and we're established in the name of the Lord, His character and His purpose. But we're also seeing we have a, a, a witness testimony that rests upon us from God as well. And we see this in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. Look what Paul writes. He says, you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, when you believed, you were marked in Him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. Say the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit. Who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of His glory. You see, the Holy Spirit has been given to us. When we become a follower of Christ, the Holy Spirit comes upon us and in us and rests upon us and in us as God's testimony, His witness upon us that we are His children. Think about this a moment. To make us a body of believers, to enable us to become the children of God, God gave us himself in the person of Jesus Christ. Then to reinforce that and to put his testimony and witness upon us, he gives us himself in the person of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit himself testifies and bears witness that we are the church of the living God, sons and daughters of God. And Paul really emphasizes this in Romans chapter 8, verse 16, where it says this, The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Can you read that out loud with me, please? The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. The Holy Spirit, God Himself, inside us through Jesus Christ, Constantly reminding, constantly reinforcing, constantly replenishing, and showing that, yes, we are sons and daughters of God. And man, when we look at what God went to, to make us who we are on this earth, it's an amazing thing to me. And I tell you, the church, again, when done right, 
When done right, there is no greater community on the face of the earth like the church of Jesus Christ. And it's interesting. You know, when you look at the people that make up the church, they're the most unlikeliest of people that you would think would ever come together to be in unity on anything. I mean, we just look around this room. We could just take a moment. If we had the time and just went and just sat down and talked to everybody to find out their stories, we would find out a lot of all the differences we have. Yeah, maybe the main thing we share together for the most part is we live in the Canton area, perhaps. But then again, you look at all of our backgrounds and upbringings and, and likes and dislikes. Man, we probably see a lot of differences between us sitting in this room. And, and the interesting thing is the church brings the most unlikeliest of people together. When you look at Jonathan and David, there was nothing in the natural that should have led them to become the type of friends that they were. Yeah, they were Jews. And yes, they were warriors. But really, when you get beyond that, there's not a whole lot in the natural that they shared in common. David was born in Bethlehem. David was born of a lowly family. David was raised as a sheep herder. Jonathan, as Pastor Jeremy just spoke of a moment ago, he was born into royalty. He's the son of the king, the oldest son. He's heir to the throne. He's born in royalty. He's got, in the natural, he's got the royal bloodline. Now, God obviously chose David, but there's nothing these two share in common. Yet here they are, they come together and become the, the most devoted of friends. And in fact, they could have been, and in the natural, should have been rivals. Jonathan should have been jealous of David just as his dad was. Because David was usurping him as king. That was Jonathan's throne in the natural. But here David is, he's the guy that gets it. Jonathan should have been angry. Jonathan should have been jealous. Or maybe he could have befriended him just for political gain, just to kind of get close to him and maybe ride his shirt tails up to the top. But that's not what Jonathan does, as we saw. Covenant relationship, loved him as he loved himself, and Jeremy pointed out, he gave him his robe, his tunic, his bow. All that, as Jeremy said, that represented he was submitting his royalty to David. Now, why would he do that? I believe. I believe. Because Jonathan saw God's work in David's life. He saw that it was God's will for David to be king, not him. And he wanted God's will and purpose to be done. And so he yields himself to help David become what God wanted him to be. Folks, that's the church. We come together. We look and see how God is working in each one of our lives. And we yield to one another to help one another become everything God wants us to become in Jesus Christ. That's the community of the church. Bringing these different people together that shouldn't be is a, only a work of God. In fact, Paul in Romans 12 kind of tells us how all this works. Verses 4 and 5, it says, Just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function. We all have bodies that have all these different members to them. we got fingers and toes and hands and feet and arms and legs and elbows and kneecaps, and they're all in this one body, and they all have different functions how does it all work together? He, Paul's making this analogy to the church because all these different types of people together. And here's what he says in verse 5. So in Christ. Say in Christ. in Christ. So in Christ, we who are many form one body and each member belongs to all the others. How does this one big old lanky body up here work together 
It's under one mind. One mind is controlling this body. And this body, with all of its different members and all of its different functions, is responding to the mind. Our mind is Christ Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and the Heavenly Father. And brings all of us together as one. So we yield all of our personal agendas to that of the King to become the greatest community that we can become. So I want to go a moment back to the question I asked. Can you think of relationships you presently have or could potentially have that would match that of Jonathan and David? If you're a follower of Christ, the answer to that question needs to be yes. I may not presently have that kind of a relationship, but I can potentially because I am a part of the body of Jesus Christ. Now, just to show you how unlikely people can come, or the most unlikely people can come, and, and be together in a moment and be kind of instantly together in, in God, Pastor Brett Mays and I, Pastor Brett Mays is our missions and discipleship pastor. He and I went to China uh, a couple of, uh, back in May, a couple of months ago. And uh, we went there to, to train, do some leadership training with some of the house church leaders there in China of the missionary that we support. And uh, we did some teaching at some of the house churches. Now, you could not find any more different people than the Chinese and Americans. I mean, Chinese are raised in communist atheism. We're raised, Pastor Brett and I were raised here in democracy and basically the Judeo-Christian ethic. They cannot practice, the Chinese that are come to Christ cannot practice their Christianity out in the open. They got to do it secretly. They got to do it very discreetly. We can practice our Christianity out in the open. Not to mention that they have a very different language than American and their food is very different than what we eat. You go to a Chinese restaurant here, that is not the food they have in China, trust me. It's some weird, weird stuff that they eat and they, and they love and they eat with chopsticks. I had to learn how to, I just chased my food for five days, just chased it around my plate, trying, trying to eat it. Not to mention that we look very different. In fact, I want you to see this group picture. I know you can't find Pastor Brett and me in this picture. I know it's difficult. We blend in, don't we? And this, these are all the house church leaders that we trained. And just look at this. This is Pastor Brett right here. He's got more hair on his face than he does on his head. And look at all the, our Chinese brothers and sisters. No beard, no, ha- no facial hair at all on them. He and I, he, Brett became a, an attraction unto himself. We went to the Great Wall of China. There were more people lining up to have pictures with Brett than they were for the Great Wall. They couldn't believe this guy with his hair on his face. And here I am, I'm six foot four, and most of the folks over there are, are, are short. And when Pastor Brett and I are walking down the street, I mean, we got all kind of looks. And we were walking down the street one time, and this, uh, this elderly Chinese couple passed us. And uh, they said, we could tell they were looking at us, and they said something in Chinese as they went by. And our interpreter started laughing. And he looked at me, and he said, Pastor Mark, those people want to know what your parents fed you to make you so tall. <laughs> you could not have found more different people than what you're seeing on this screen. I want to tell you something. 
We became instant friends. We couldn't hardly communicate with them. But man, we could worship with them. And we could cry with them. And we could laugh with them. And we could pray together with them. And we could learn the Word of God together with them. Because what made us a group of people, a community, was not our ethnicity, was not our language, was not our looks. It was Jesus Christ through the person of the Holy Spirit. That's, that's the church and community. And there was a, a man by the name of Joe who's gone to be with the Lord now, but he was a part of the Mount Perry ministry for many years. Before he came to Christ, he was a, uh, a professional gambler. He, was a, he, he had an addiction to gambling. And he made and lost fortunes gambling. Came to Christ and got freed and delivered of that habit, became an elder at Mount Perrin. He served as one of our uh, sanctuary hosts, one of our ushers. And one Sunday morning, he was taking up the offering and sitting on the pew at old Mount Perrin Central, at the end of the pew was one of his old gambling buddies that Joe hadn't seen in years. And Joe didn't recognize him at first. And when the plate got down to his gambling buddy sitting on the edge of the pew, he recognized Joe. And he handed the plate to Joe, and Joe took it, but the guy didn't let go of it right away. And Joe was trying to get it from him and looked and realized, oh, this is, he recognized who he was. And his gambling buddy looked at him and said, Joe, if you're taking money up at this church, I'm not putting a dime in this plate. <laughs> Of course, his gambling buddy was looking at Joe from his old life, but Joe's looking at his gambling buddy from his new life. Let me tell you what happened. Joe reconnected with him as a friend. They started getting together. Joe told him his Jesus story, and his gambling buddy came to Christ. See, <laughs> when done right, there's no greater community on the face of the earth than the church of Jesus Christ. I'll share this one last story, and then we're going to we're going, to, we're going to pray with one another. If I say to you, Ferguson, Missouri, if I say to you, Baltimore, Maryland, I think images come to our minds because of the past several months that have been happening in those two cities. The tragic death of a two young black men at the hands of law enforcement and the racial tension that it unleashed in those two cities and we saw these kinds of images, you may recall. We saw the destruction. We saw the violence. We saw the vandalism. We saw the hate. This filled our TV screens. But then two weeks ago, we have a young white man that walks into a black AME church in Charleston, South Carolina. He openly confesses it's a racial shooting. He shoots people. You know the story, nine people in this prayer service at this AME church. But the images we see from Charleston look very different than what we saw in Ferguson and Baltimore. This is the bridge of peace that took place, I believe it was last Sunday, where they estimate some fifteen to 20,000 people showed up at this bridge in Charleston that spans the Charleston area, and they, you see them united together, black, white, different genders, all united together, Promoting love and promoting unity, promoting peace. Two very similar stories, or three very similar stories, but very different responses. Why is it this way in Charleston? And was it that way in Ferguson and Baltimore? Well, I think we can look at a lot of different things, but I think a major reason that we saw this kind of demonstration in Charleston was because of the way the church responded in Charleston. The families of the victims 
followers of Christ responded in forgiveness. They responded in love. They responded in hope. Yes, they were hurting. Yes, they want justice. But they were responding under a different culture. Under a different kingdom. They were responding out of the kingdom of God. And when they respond with this love, and they respond with this hope, and they respond with this forgiveness, what does it spark? It sparks this show of love and healing and peace and unity. Listen, Saul tried to tear David and Jonathan apart. He attacked David. He even attacked his own son, Jonathan. But the attacks of Saul could not tear David and Jonathan apart. I want to tell you, if the church will hold together in the person of Jesus Christ, in the love, in the giving, in the protecting, in the affirmation, in a covenant relationship, in the character and the will of God, under the authority and the testimony of God, I don't care what the Supreme Court continues to rule or not rule. I don't care what comes down from the White House. I don't care what comes out of Congress. I don't care what continues to happen with ISIS. I care from the standpoint I want it to stop, but at the same time I know the church of Jesus Christ can hold together no matter the assault of the enemy because Jesus Christ lives and Jesus Christ is our overcomer what kind what kind of covenant community churchgoer am I See, if I really want this type of relationship that we see in Jonathan and David that we believe reflects the, un- the community of the church, I've got to want to be that kind of friend. I've got to want to be that kind of person. I've got to want to be. It's got to start with me. My responses. My engaging. And if you're somebody that's a part of this Canton campus, and you're saying, man, I want to move deeper into relationships, deeper into community, life groups, and or finding a place of service. Two best next steps for you. Life groups and or finding a place of service to move deeper into community. I'm going to invite us to stand if you would please. And I want to give us an opportunity to be in community for the next moment. You don't have to participate in this if you don't want to. And it's going to be no judgment on your spirituality whether you participate or not. But I'm inviting you to take a moment to have community right there. Find a, one or two people and simply share a prayer request. And y'all just pray one for the other. Now, you don't have to dump every all part of your bucket. You know, don't give the War and Peace version. Give the Reader's Digest version. If anybody even remembers War and Peace and Reader's Digest nowadays. <laughs> War and Peace is long. Reader's Digest is short. I'm asking you to give the short version. If you want to do the War and Peace version, go to lunch together and be in a community and give the War and Peace version. But just take a moment. Find a couple of people. Share a request. Pray for one another. Can we be, in the name of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit, the church community together right now. Just do that. We'll let you pray and then we'll have a time of worship and we'll close.